everyone. Welcome to this week's conversation with Dr. Stephen Ned about the body and how to fix, protect, or maintain it using outside-the-box alternative solutions. If you're a big fan of the pharmaceutical or surgical approach, you are so in the wrong place because on this podcast, we're not going to be pushing the conventional medicine methods or way of thinking about health. If you're looking for another way to live longer and healthier, join me, Ron Ned and my brother, Dr. Stephen Ned, for this week's body chat about the gallbladder and the liver. Me? I'm a retired Twin Cities chiropractor currently helping people buy and sell homes in the Tampa Bay and Los Angeles areas. My brother has a thriving chiropractic practice in the Clearwater area of Tampa Bay, Florida. In this podcast, we're going to chat about all sorts of topics related to health, nutrition, exercise, just about everything having to do with the body. You're invited to listen into our body chat, but don't forget that neither of us is giving you health advice, so don't rush off to do something without either checking with your doctor first or seeing Dr. Steven Nett as a patient at his office. Good evening, Steve. Good evening, brother. All right. Well, we're going to continue along the line of the hormone organs and glands. This week, we're going to be talking about the liver and gallbladder, which are both well, at least the liver is part of the endocrine system. The gallbladder, not so much, but there is a relationship there. So that's why we're going into both of them. And they are both part of the digestive system, which we talked about before. So then let's get into that and look at how the liver and gallbladder work together as part of the digestive system first. All right. Well, getting right to the point, the liver produces a mixture called bile, which is eventually transported to the small intestine to break down fats into small particles. And the reason for this is because fats, also known as lipids, do not dissolve in water. They're what's called hydrophobic particles. So before they can be digested in the watery environment of the small intestine, they need to be broken down from large lipid particles to small lipid particles, and this process is called emulsification. Now, bile is a mixture composed of water, bile salts, bile pigments, electrolytes, cholesterol, triglycerides, and a type of fat or lipid called phospholipids, which include lecithin. The bile pigment that gives bile its distinctive green color is called bilirubin. And another interesting thing about bilirubin is that it's eventually converted by intestinal bacteria into stercobilin which is a brown pigment that gives your stool its usual color. Oh, really? Hmm. Okay. So now we know where the colors are coming from. Yeah. And also if liver is unable to efficiently clear bilirubin from the bloodstream and it builds up there, then it can cause yellowing of the skin and the whites of the eyes resulting in jaundice. Yes. Now, the liver can either send bile directly to the small intestine, or it could send it to the gallbladder where it's stored, concentrated, and then released into the small intestine when it's needed later on. By the way, the liver and gallbladder are classified as accessory digestive organs, which means that they help with digestion but are not part of the digestive tract. Okay. And other accessory digestive organs include the tongue, salivary glands, and the pancreas, which we'll be covering in the next podcast. Wow. Okay. Yeah. So the digestive tract, again, is composed of the mouth, esophagus, stomach, and intestines. Excellent. All right. Well, that's good to clear that up because it isn't part of the tract the food travels through. Mm -hmm. 
What does the liver do as part of the endocrine system that's different than what it does as part of the digestive system? Because we just talked about it producing bile. So now in an endocrine function, what does it do? Well, first of all, the liver secretes a few minor hormones, which I went over a few podcasts ago in episode 67, where we covered all the body hormones in general. Right. The four liver hormones, again, are IGF-1, also known as insulin-like growth factor 1 which stimulates growth in the body, especially the bones, angiotensinogen, which raises blood pressure, mm -hmm. thrombopoietin, which stimulates the production of platelets in the blood, and hepcidin, which blocks the release of iron into the body fluids. Now, secondly, the liver plays a vital role in the body's use of hormones, whether they're produced naturally in our bodies or introduced through synthetic or bioidentical hormone therapies. Uh, you know, basically, the liver acts as a hormone processor by producing and or regulating some hormone levels and by directing various hormones to perform their specific function in other parts of the body. Okay. Yeah, one of those hormones is growth hormone, which was covered in our podcasts on um, Dr. Berg's Seven Principles of Fat Burning, in which we learned that it's produced in the brain by the pituitary gland and works through the liver as a fat-burning, lean muscle-building hormone. Right. And then finally, the liver also produces the primary building block to all of the major sex hormones, which are estrogen, progesterone, and testosterone, and that is cholesterol. Yes, that's right. Yeah. In fact, the liver produces about 80% of the body's total cholesterol. In other words, puberty wouldn't be nearly as much fun without cholesterol in our lives. So when people talk about how bad cholesterol is, any teenager now can just go and tell them you're full of it. Jeez. All right. What a <laughs> nice observation, Einstein. <laughs> well, sometimes they put these things together. They just kind of. I know. Yes. All right, so what other vital functions does the liver perform in the body besides the digestive-related ones and the endocrine-related ones? Well, as you know, the liver has over 500 functions, but I'm just going to list some of its most important ones besides those that I've already covered. Okay. So the liver is the body's primary detoxification organ as it filters the blood and breaks down alcohol, uh, it metabolizes drugs, and it removes bacteria and harmful chemicals. Yeah, so that's a really vital function of the liver. Oh, yeah, for sure. And it's one of the things that I don't know if we have an upcoming episode where we'll go into it, but one of the things that people have to realize if they uh, abuse alcohol or drugs, that one of the side effects is the damage to the liver. That's true. We're going to go into a little more detail on that in a bit. Oh, cool. Okay. So it also converts fats, proteins, and carbohydrates to energy and nutrients. It specifically converts blood sugar or glucose into glycogen, which is stored for future use as fuel. Uh -huh. It also stores all the fat-soluble vitamins, uh, A, D, E, and K, as well as minerals, including iron. Are they stored in the liver itself? Yes. Okay. And it regulates blood clotting. And it produces immune factors that help the body resist infections. Well, those are a lot of really key functions. So it's an important organ just 
I mean, you've got digestive, you've got endocrine, and then you've got things like detoxification and storage of various different nutrients in the body. That's a lot of really key functions. That's for sure. So now the liver's partner, the gallbladder. So what are some of the ways that the gallbladder can malfunction? Well, there's five primary conditions that can occur when the gallbladder malfunctions. Uh, It can develop gallstones. It can trigger a hiatal hernia. It can become inflamed. It can become infected or it can develop cancer. So let's go over each of these in a little bit of detail. Okay. You're going to start with the gallstones? Yes. Okay. So gallstones are hardened deposits of digestive fluid that are normally composed of bile, cholesterol, bilirubin, and even calcium. They can develop in the gallbladder or in the bile duct and can be as small as a grain of sand or as large as a golf ball. No. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. Stones that block the bile duct can cause a gallbladder to have the infamous gallbladder attack. Hmm. Now, a hiatal hernia can be triggered by a malfunctioning gallbladder. You know what? Before I get into this, I just realized that I haven't gone over the most common symptoms when the gallbladder malfunctions. So let's do that first. Okay. So these include uh, chest pain, chills, clay-colored stool, jaundice, which is, again, yellowing the skin and eyes. Mm Mm-hmm. Pain that refers to the right shoulder blade or to the right upper back and shoulder. Pain that worsens after eating a meal, uh, particularly fatty or greasy foods. Mm -hmm. Headaches in the area of the temples, especially on the right side. Tenderness in the abdomen, particularly the right upper quadrant. Uh, It can also cause vomiting, nausea, and fever. A feeling of fullness. And heartburn, indigestion, and excessive gas. Wow. Yeah, it's this last set of symptoms that it's associated with a hiatal hernia since when the stomach blows up from too much gas, it can cause acid to reflux back up into the esophagus and also stretch the hole in the diaphragm called the hiatus, which allows the stomach to also herniate upward into the chest cavity. Oh, okay. Yeah. Yeah, and you know what to do for hiatal hernia. So if people have that, they should probably contact you. I don't know that we've gone over that. Uh, we have a little bit, but I am going to talk about how, uh, how that occurs a little bit later on. Oh, you are. Okay, good. Now, another condition is called cholecystitis, and that is inflammation of the gallbladder and the most common type of gallbladder disease. It's commonly caused by gallstones, but can also be due to excessive alcohol use, infections, or even tumors that cause bile to build up. Now, a gallbladder infection can occur during acute cholecystitis when a gallstone blocks the gallbladder completely, causing it to fill with pus. Hmm. And this is more common in people with diabetes and heart disease. All right. And then there's gallbladder cancer that can occur, but fortunately, this is relatively rare. Well, that's good. Yeah. All right. But the other ones can be serious enough. So what are the common medical approaches to some of the gallbladder problems? All right. Well, let's start with gallstones. Mm -hmm. Gallstones are typically managed through medical observation or surgical removal of the gallbladder by a procedure that's also known as laparoscopic cholecystectomy, which involves four to five small incisions in the abdomen and even into the belly button where a scope is inserted to view the gallbladder. Okay. Uh, Medical observation is basically the attempt to prevent surgery, even if the person has some stones or a propensity for developing stones. 
And uh, dietary recommendations are usually given, including uh, reducing the intake of saturated fats, sugar, and other carbohydrates like pasta and bread, while at the same time increasing the intake of fiber, fruits and vegetables, good fats like olive oil, flaxseed oil, and fish oil, and even coffee, which has been found to lower the risk of gallstones since it's thought to stimulate gallbladder contractions and lower the cholesterol concentrations in bile. That's interesting. Yeah. But again, I caution that you drink coffee in moderation because it can cause other issues in the body. Right. Now, there's also an endoscopic procedure that can remove gallstones that are blocking the bile ducts or the cystic duct. And there are also some oral medications that may be able to dissolve gallstones. Now, for acute cholecystitis, a person is typically hospitalized and before you know, having their gallbladder surgically removed, they'll normally fast, receive intravenous fluids to prevent dehydration. Uh, they'll receive antibiotics because the gallbladder is often also infected. And they'll be given pain medications to reduce the pain from acute inflammation. But for milder cases of acute cholecystitis, uh, as well as infections, which are often the result of acute cholecystitis, the usual remedy is just antibiotic therapy. Mm -hmm. And then finally, gallbladder cancer may involve a combination of surgical removal of the gallbladder, chemotherapy, and radiation. Okay. Yes. And a friend of ours went through a pretty bad gallbladder attack, and I accompanied our friend to the hospital. I don't know if you remember that. That was, gosh, that must be probably six years ago now. And uh, she was in just some extreme pain. So that can be a very difficult thing for somebody to go through. Oh, yeah. Now, those are the medical approaches you just went over. But what workable alternative approaches have you found to gallbladder problems? Well, you know, I've used five approaches uh, for many, many years with excellent results, potentially saving dozens upon dozens of gallbladders from surgical removal. Oh, yeah. You're going to tell us about them? Oh, yeah. Oh, good. Yeah, let's start with AF-beta food by standard process. Uh, this is by far my favorite nutritional supplement for gallbladder support. Mm -hmm. It's uh, primarily composed of the roots, leaves, and flesh of organic beets and carrots and is outstanding for both gallbladder and liver conditions. Hmm. I've also put together a digestive disorder diet that I always hand out to patients with gallbladder disorders, and it includes foods to avoid and foods that are okay to eat. Then we get to the gallbladder flush. Oh, yes. Yeah. I know you've done those many times. I have. And, you know, this is legendary for helping remove sludge and stones from the gallbladder very effectively and rapidly. Okay. And, you know, there's many variations out there, but I found that drinking organic apple juice while taking the supplement FOSS drops from NutriWest or FOSS food from Standard Process for five days helps to soften up the sludge and bile deposits, especially if they contain calcium. Okay. Now, on day six, I have the patient eat their usual breakfast and lunch and then wait a few hours and they take a solution of Epsom salt dissolved in water. Mm-hmm. Uh, they then wait a few more hours and take another dose of this solution. And then at dinner, they eat a fruit salad with whipped cream. And then right before going to bed, they drink a half a cup of organic extra virgin olive oil along with either grapefruit juice or lemon juice or lemonade. And then lie down on their right side with their right knee braced against their chest for about 30 minutes to contract the gallbladder to start the process of eliminating the sludge. Mm-hmm. 
when the person gets up the next day, they, you know, drink again, one more dose of Epsom salt and water and then rest you know, the rest of the day, they'll be eliminating the waste products from the gallbladder. And it'll typically look like little green jelly beans or peas coming out in their bowel movements. Right. It's a moving experience. <laughs> I'll tell you that. <laughs> now, uh, cold laser therapy, along with ice packs, are excellent for calming down an inflamed gallbladder. Cold laser therapy is also good for healing up and strengthening the diaphragm if it's been stretched or torn from a hiatal hernia. Okay. Chiropractic adjustments to the fourth vertebra in the upper back or the thoracic spine can help the gallbladder since this is the direct nerve supply to it. And the fifth through eighth vertebrae are linked to the liver. Oh, well, then that would be why they'd need to get adjusted. That's right. In addition, soft tissue manipulation of the stomach and diaphragm can help a hiatal hernia by resetting the diaphragm muscle. Mm -hmm. and repositioning the stomach back down in its proper location in the upper abdomen. Right. So that's the actual mechanical procedure that I do for people that have a hiatal hernia. Do you ever use the activator on it? I do. I actually do a combination of the activator plus um, my hands. Okay. And that works quite well. Cool. In fact, you know, our mom had that uh, and it would go out on a daily basis. So I trained our dad how to do that to help her every day. Yep. I remember. Now, we're going to move off from the gallbladder to the liver. So let's take a look first of, all, first of all at what are the most common liver conditions that arise. All right. Well, the most common liver conditions include infections, inherited conditions, fatty liver disease and non-alcoholic fatty liver disease, cirrhosis, acute liver failure, and cancer. Okay. So I'm going to go through all of these. All right. Good. So as far as infections, viral hepatitis is the most common cause of liver disease, and there's actually five of these, A, B, C, D, and E. Wow. Yeah, with A, B, and C being the most common. These all cause inflammation of the liver since the suffix itis means inflammation. inflammation. Right. So hepatitis A is primarily spread from contaminated food or water, but can also result from contact with someone who's infected. Mm -hmm. Hepatitis B is spread when people come in contact with the blood, open sores, or body fluids of someone who has the virus, such as through unprotected sex or taking drugs with shared needles. Mm -hmm. Now, there's some controversy with this one because since 1991, the Centers for Disease Control has recommended that all newborns are given the vaccine for this, beginning at 12 hours of age, and then two more doses before they're 18 months old to prevent transmission by an infected mother. Mm -hmm. The reason for this is that public health officials and doctors couldn't persuade adults in high-risk groups, primarily IV drug users and persons with multiple sex partners, to get the vaccine. And, you know, we went over potential issues with vaccines due to the additives called adjuvants in our immunization and vaccination podcast, which was episode number 36. Right. So with that in mind, coupled with the fact that if the mother or her partner are not IV drug users and do not have a history of unprotected promiscuous sex, then the mother has the right to skip having the baby receiving this vaccine. Oh, that's good. So I educate, you know, expectant mothers on this. That's really great. Yeah. I mean, another really smart thing to do is just to make sure that she doesn't have hepatitis B by just simply getting a blood test for it. I know. 
I mean, th- that should be standard procedure instead of just automatically giving these babies the vaccine. Yeah, that's just common sense, but I won't say anything more. Okay. And finally, hepatitis C is the most common of all the types of hepatitis. Yeah, that's the one you hear most about. Right. Now, it's spread by contact with contaminated blood, such as from taking drugs with shared needles, being accidentally stuck by an infected needle in a healthcare setting. So since I do acupuncture, I have to be extremely careful about this. Right. Or it can happen by receiving a tattoo from an unsterile equipment setup. Wow. Yeah. Now, authorities recommend that all baby boomers get tested for hepatitis C since it's most commonly found in them for some unexplained reason. Hmm. Yeah. Now, there's two other viruses that can really follow up the liver, and they are the herpes family viruses, cytomegalovirus and Epstein-Barr virus, with uh, cytomegalovirus causing liver inflammation and liver function problems, and the Epstein-Barr virus causing swelling of the liver and high liver enzymes. Mm-hmm. Okay, I'd like to go over two inherited conditions that can occur, you know, with the liver. Okay. Uh, the first is called hemochromatosis. And this is a condition where your body stores too much of the iron from your food, and it ends up in your liver, heart, or other organs, potentially leading to life-threatening diseases like liver disease, heart disease, or diabetes. Wow. Yeah. And then there's Wilson's disease, which is where you have too much copper building up in your liver and other organs, not only causing liver disease, but potentially nerve and mental problems. Next up is fatty liver disease. And this is a condition affecting about 25% of the world's population. And this occurs when too much fat builds up in the liver. Uh, It's commonly due to too much alcohol consumption, but if it isn't, it's known as non-alcoholic fatty liver disease. And what causes that? Uh, I'll go over that in a little bit. Okay. Because it, the, basically the remedy has to do with, you know, basically the things that tend to cause it. Okay. Cirrhosis is a late stage of scarring or fibrosis of the liver, which is typically caused by other types of liver conditions, especially hepatitis and chronic alcoholism. And then we have acute liver failure, which is a loss of liver function that occurs rapidly in just days or weeks, and usually in a person who has no pre-existing liver disease. So this can be due to an infection, an overdose of medication, or poisoning. Hmm. Acetaminophen is the nation's leading cause of acute liver failure, according to data from an ongoing study funded by the National Institutes of Health. Hmm. Yeah, and according to the American Association for the Study of Liver Diseases, Acetaminophen overdoses cause 50,000 emergency room visits and 500 deaths annually in the United States. Wow. Yeah. I first learned about this connection back in 1998 when I read an article from Forbes magazine called J&J's Dirty Little Secret. J&J stands for Johnson & Johnson, which is the drug company that manufactures Tylenol. Mm Mm-hmm. That article plus another one that was similar to it in Newsweek showed how people were dying of liver failure from taking Tylenol, even in standard doses, and that at that time, Tylenol became the number one cause of drug deaths in the United States, even ahead of cocaine. Wow. Yeah. Just a few months before that article came out, there was an excellent study published in the New England Journal of Medicine entitled Acetaminophen Toxicity in an Urban County Hospital. 
Now, despite all this evidence, it took the FDA another 13 years to finally put a black box label on acetaminophen products, including Tylenol. So in 2011, this black box stated that liver damage can result from acetaminophen overdosage. Hmm. And this was later amended by the FDA in 2015 to include language for adults and children as far as the amount taken in one day that can cause liver damage, which is over 4,000 milligrams, or if you take it with more than three or more alcoholic drinks, Hmm. or with other drugs containing acetaminophen. Hmm. So the last part of this kind of got me because I didn't realize that acetaminophen is found in over 600 different prescription and over-the-counter drugs, including cold, allergy, and fever medicines, sleep aids, and pain relievers. Wow. Yeah. So these include, get this, Benadryl, NyQuil, Excedrin, Sudafed, Theraflu, Vicks, Midol, Oxycodone, Percocet, and Vicodin. Oh, God. (laughs) Yeah. So, and, you know, some of those are the opiates that have been causing so many, you know, deaths, I mean, like every day. So that combination is just wicked. Wow. So here's an example of how mixing Tylenol with other medications can cause an overdose. So let's say you have cold and flu symptoms and take the recommended daily dose of Tylenol, which is 10 tablets at 325 milligrams per tablet. So that equals 3,250 milligrams plus the daily recommended dose of eight tablets of NyQuil, Liquicaps, then you would exceed the acetaminophen limit, which again is 4,000 milligrams, by 1,825 milligrams, putting you at risk for an overdose. Wow. Yeah. And acetaminophen also should never be taken on an empty stomach. Oh. Yeah. Okay. So, you know, in my opinion, it should be avoided altogether since there are much safer alternatives, even though it's been touted for decades by Johnson & Johnson as the pain reliever that doctors recommend the most. Mm -hmm. All right. And finally, cancer. Most cancers of the liver are metastatic, which means that they originated and spread from other areas of the body, including the lungs, colon, or breasts. All right. So they don't originate in the liver. Most of the time, no. Okay. So now that we know what the most common liver conditions are, what are the medical approaches to these different conditions? All right. Well, let's begin with the different types of hepatitis. For hepatitis A, the typical treatment is simply rest and adequate hydration since this condition normally clears up on its own in one or two months. Okay. Hepatitis B often clears up on its own too, but chronic cases need medication and possibly a liver transplant. And hepatitis C treatment is antiviral medications. Right. In some people, newer medicines have been found to eradicate the virus altogether. Hmm. Really? So it's completely gone then? Mm-hmm. Okay. Now, cytomegalovirus is treated with antiviral drugs too. And Epstein-Barr virus, which by the way, has been shown in studies to infect at least 95% of the population. Wow. Just like some of the other herpes like I think herpes simplex one, which is the cold sores, mm-hmm. is, is in that high range too. This has no medical treatment for it, whether it's an acute infection causing mono or a chronic flare-up. So instead, symptom relief is recommended, which includes bed rest, drinking plenty of fluids, not getting too much sun, 
and taking painkillers like acetaminophen or ibuprofen to bring down fever and relieve body aches. Okay. For hemochromatosis, which again is when you have too much iron in your body, uh, the treatment is to remove blood from your body on a regular basis. Really? Yeah, just as if you were donating blood. Oh. Or by taking a chelating medication, which binds up excess iron, which is then expelled from the body through the urine or stool. Okay. The treatment for Wilson's disease is similar to this, as it also involves taking chelating drugs, which in this case bind up excess copper in the body. Hmm. Well, yeah, that would make sense. Mm -hmm. For fatty liver disease that is alcohol-induced, then obviously alcohol avoidance is the primary treatment. Mm Mm-hmm. And for non-alcoholic fatty liver disease, the recommended therapy is a combination of weight loss, avoiding overeating, and including certain foods in the diet, such as monounsaturated fats like avocados, olive oil, and nuts, whey protein, green tea, and fiber. Plus, certain forms of exercise have been shown to reduce liver fat and are recommended, including endurance exercise, strength training, or high or low-intensity interval training. All right. So to answer the earlier question I had, it sounds like it's a lifestyle issue that causes this to occur. Exactly. And obesity is at the top of the list. Right. Now for cirrhosis, medical treatment focuses on the underlying cause, but in advanced cases, a liver transplant may be needed. Right. Acute liver failure is typically treated with medications to reverse poisoning. For acetaminophen overdose, the remedy is a medication called acetylcysteine. Hmm, I've heard of that. Mm -hmm. And in many situations, though, a liver transplant may be the only workable solution. Okay. Uh, Liver cancer treatments vary, but may include the removal of part of the liver, a transplant, chemotherapy, and in some cases, radiation. Right. None of which are pleasant to go through and none of which are a guarantee. Right. So because because of the fact that medical approaches don't always get a result and sometimes people don't want to go through them, which everyone does have a choice. Are there any alternative approaches to liver conditions as far as the treatment that people can get? Absolutely. So I'd like to go over some of the best liver detox nutrients. Okay. The top of the list is definitely milk thistle. This is a terrific antioxidant herb that's been used for over 2000 years And it's been found to be helpful for basically every liver condition, including cirrhosis, hepatitis, jaundice, alcoholic liver disease, high cholesterol, and even the prevention of liver cancer as well as gallstones. Wow. Yeah. Now, glutathione is a naturally occurring antioxidant in the body, and it works very well for liver conditions, especially when it's taken with milk thistle. It's best taken as an oral supplement in the form of N-acetylcysteine or NAC. Right. And its most potent and fast-working form, however, is as a glutathione IV drip, hmm. which I've had. Have you really? hmm Okay. Now, Total Liver Detox is also an excellent supplement made by NutriWest that I recommend for liver conditions, and it does contain milk thistle as well as liver glandular and many other outstanding vitamins, minerals, herbs, and enzymes that support liver function and detoxification. All right. Another neat thing is organic carrot juice. This has been used traditionally for liver support and detoxification too. Really? Mm -hmm. And also Dr. Schultz's five-day liver detox, which is also part of his 30-day detox, which is an excellent liver cleanse. Okay. 
And then finally, the product called SP Cleanse from Standard Process. This not only helps to detoxify the liver, but it's 20 organic superfoods also help the body cleanse the kidneys, colon, bloodstream, and lymph system too. Yeah, I remember back when you had a lot of people doing the HCG diet, one of the things you would do before they started was you would have them do take that for about a week beforehand to actually get the liver functioning even better before starting on the diet. Yeah, because when they were getting rid of tons of fat, they needed it, you know, they needed the liver to be able to process that and get it out of the body more efficiently. Correct. Now the gallbladder flush is not only helpful for the gallbladder, but also the liver. And that's why some people also call it the liver gallbladder flush. Oh, yeah. And then finally, the nutrient choline you know, if you recall in our B vitamin podcast, this was originally classified as a B vitamin, B18 to be exact. Mm -hmm. It's an essential nutrient needed by the body for many functions, but its relationship to the liver is that it's needed for making a substance required for removing cholesterol from your liver. So inadequate choline may result in fat and cholesterol buildup in your liver. So I like to recommend this when people have high cholesterol levels or if they've been diagnosed with fatty liver disease. Okay. Yeah. So that's a good approach. Mm -hmm. All right. Those are some alternative things that people can do having to do with both liver and gallbladder. Now we've gone through quite a bit. Is there anything else you'd like to say before we end this today? No, nah, it looks like we've got it all covered this time. Excellent. All right. Well, next week we're going to go over the other, one of the other kind of digestive hormone type organs, which is the pancreas. And just for fun, we're going to throw in the appendix because we haven't talked about that yet. It's the bonus organ of the week. So that'll be next week. And we've got a lot of really good things coming up after that. So thanks for all the information on that, especially on the stuff on Tylenol so that people are very cautious about using that. You're welcome. Thanks for joining us this week on the Body Chat Podcast. We both really appreciate your time and your attention. We want to provide you with interesting and informative episodes each week, and if you have a topic you'd like us to cover or any questions you'd like us to answer, send an email to us at info at bodychatpodcast.com. That's info at bodychatpodcast.com. To make sure you don't miss any of our upcoming episodes, subscribe to the Body Chat Podcast now on iTunes, Stitcher, Google Play, or Spotify. See you next week. Music